Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about The Man Who Lived Underground, which is Richard Wright's 1944 slash 1961 slash 2021 novel about police violence and finding oneself underground. Finding oneself, but not in a nice way. <laughs> um, before we start, remember our stickers and buttons promotion. It is very cool. Write us a review on any of your preferred podcast platforms or elsewhere on the internet where people write reviews for things and then send us a screenshot to betterredpodcast at gmail.com and your mailing address. We will send you our rad communist better red than dead stickers and buttons. You can rock your little punk rocker book jerk button or your Frankenstein large adult son one and tell someone you like them more than Trotsky because it's fun to do that. <laughs> With respect to right, why did we pick it? Why did I pick it? Why would I pick Comrade Richard Wright, who is my favorite guy and a colossal fucking weirdo? <laughs> and I mean, I, I anytime we should read them all. But this particular book is because this is a new publication of it. It came out last year in the year of our Lord, 2000. 21. Which is which is wild. I mean, this is one of the most important U.S. writers of all time. And as, as you to have told me, he still has a ton of unpublished stuff out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think of the novels only one of them is still out of never has never been published, right. but it's um, yeah, that's, it, yeah. it's a problem. Yeah, tons of his stuff wasn't published during his lifetime. But I had read the short story version of this in grad school, and I loved it. So I was really excited, like I think all fans of uh, Wright were, to see the fuller version. And as with a lot of Black writers and all writers, but like marginalized writers in particular, a lot of Wright's stuff wasn't published during his lifetime. So it's nice and important to see it in print, of course. It was a wild ride for <laughs> for these swift 200 pages so swift yeah for right especially it really clips yeah yeah i assume because there was a lot of press around this i assume most readers are going to pick it up and be like oh i didn't know this guy read so much like existentialism and i assure you that dick wright read fucking everything <laughs> Yeah, there's a yeah. he uh, Michelle Faber has a volume that's his his library, his bibliography, and it's quite a vast, strange, Hegelian stuffed library, which is all the more just amazing when you realize he was he basically. I mean, he was. He did not have very much formal schooling at all. I mean, this is just an extremely uh, smart uh, person, you know. And and yeah, I mean, his his reading list is yeah, massive he is a, for sure. He is the sort of classic autodidact, and I don't want to tell the whole story because it's so it's actually quite upsetting. But he uh, talks in Black Boy about getting a a library card. He's it's like a proxy thing. He's doing it for his white employer, so he has to do this whole like really upsetting minstrel performance like when he goes into the right. library so they right. think he doesn't read there's a children's right. book of it yowza <laughs> i mean it's i mean it's a that's a really uh powerful story yeah but, but if yeah, you want to like um, it, it's this thing where it's like what how, what if you turned right into liberalism 
is like that yeah, story yeah, becomes no, sweet sure. and inspiring <laughs> and not like the yeah. moment of like I, yeah, it's, racism it's pre- in a basement that he has to exactly <laughs> now illustrated pretty pretty clear that comrade right would would, would hate uh, <laughs> that exists i mean you know? it's just his relationship yeah. to sort of public culture is so it's like its own yeah. fucked up weird thing right like that's its own thing yeah yeah, yeah so this book his best known two books are this you know extremely famous naturalist screed and then this hard-edged memoir about like a very impoverished childhood and difficult upbringing and and then became a left leftist and organizer. So most people, I think, I think I could be wrong. Don't know that he is really into this like truly amazing, weird, surrealist style that is this book and that his later stuff does. That is he claims is a dynamic of Black American music, especially the blues, which he thinks is is the one of the sort of surrealist exemplars. As we said, the book is a a much quicker read than his usual stuff. It's brisk and strange and super out there. It's very 1940s, but also very not. And everyone should read it. And then you should also go read Black Power and The Outsider. And those are really long. So read this one first if it's only your <laughs> second Richard Wright novel. Yeah. So no, I mean, like, like, like Megan, uh, Comrade Wright is, is one of my favorite writers. Although, um, I mean, for Megan, like this is right in the middle of your field. And, and this is, uh, it, I mean, in some ways very far from my field, certainly in terms of time period. But I mean, one thing I'll say is I am like where Wright sits in the development of the novel. Um, I, that, that's really interesting to me, but yeah, basically his politics are, are really good and, and commie and, and they gave him a focus to say real good shit in fiction. But yeah, as, as I said, I'm also very, into his novels as a matter of form too. Uh, so this is the third Richard Wright I've read. The first was Uncle Tom's Children, which I read in grad school when I was a TA. And yes, I know he quickly hated that one for its propensity to let bankers' daughters do sentimentalism, but it is hugely haunting and moving and, and a deeply cutting account of the Jim Crow South. It's a great uh, so, collection. Like, <laughs> He's just like quick to do disavowal yes. of anything that he thinks people have read wrong. <laughs> Yes, yes, particularly rich, yeah. rich white liberals. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, oh yeah. So, um, and yeah, then Native Son, which uh, you know we we did on the podcast. Megan and I taught it together. Megan, I, I know you've taught uh, you know a bunch of times. I, I'm probably going to teach it again uh, soon too in a crime in the novel syllabus that I'm I'm working on. But it's one of the most transformational novels personally that I've ever read. And and you know along a few axes, one of which is like what a novel even is precisely to the extent that it doesn't want to in any way do the here is a novel please sympathize with this protagonist <laughs> yeah like, you know, it's not gonna go great no uh no you're not yes again it's he, he deprives you of that to make you focus on on structures which is really cool uh, and you know and, and very out of step with i think if you've if you've read a lot of 19th century novels what you think that form is meant to do and so yeah i was very re- into reading this quote new richard wright <laughs> um and I have to say, The Man Who Lived Underground is nothing like what I was expecting. Yes, it absolutely does left anti-racist critiques of U.S. policing and more broadly U.S. white supremacism. 
But unlike Native Son or Uncle Tom's Children, it's surrealist as all hell. Like Native Son is this brutal naturalist communist greed, mm-hmm. <laughs> wonderful book. Mm-hmm. But this is this is fucking yeah. This is really really surrealist through most of it. I I really want to talk about Wright's essay um, that accompanies this at the end, uh, where he says what he most wanted to do with this novel is an exploration of religion and specifically the black working class rural religion his grandmother inhabited, which I, you know, I read that after I finished and I was like, huh, that is not what I thought this was about. So I'm, yeah, I'm super into talking about it. Have either of you guys read Invisible Man? No, no, I still haven't. Aren't you going to? Yeah, we're going to do it next season. But if you had read it before, this would ring bells because I, I talk about this in a minute. Ellison explicitly says that this is where he got the idea for Invisible Man. Oh, okay, great. I'm I'm even more excited to read Invisible Man now. Katie, had you read had you read uh, no, Invisible Man? No, I have not. If you don't like it, then we have to cancel the show because it's my <laughs> it's my favorite novel. It would be like if we read Trist- if uh, Katie had read Tristram Shandy and was like, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> then we just be like yeah, we don't have to ever talk but then we shall never say it, his name again i f- i find it hard i find these things both equally hard to imagine yeah i think yeah, you'll read yeah. invisible man and just and be like absolutely floored um it's like this only better written and uh, does it have a character yeah it definitely does anyway katie why'd you want to read it yeah so i wanted to read more richard wright basically so uh more is better I did read the afterword a little bit first because I dug around given the publication history that Megan alluded to and, and we'll have some more on. But uh, yeah, in fact, I I found that, yes, this will be right up my alley. <laughs> there, There's a lot going on that's really interesting with, so Tristan mentioned questions of form. So questions of the novel and allegory, also what you can do with kind of religious surrealism and the Calvinist sublime, basically, it it is what it sounds like. Um, It's just like, it's like the Calvinism. And when you think about it, it's like being on a roller coaster when you're going down and you feel like your butt is um, disappearing, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's it's also a totally horrific read. It's really Oh yeah. It's it's really difficult to even make it through the first part where our main characters yeah. like being actively tortured by the police. The mundanity and kind of infinitely transferable nature of the of the violence along racial lines is something that it's not it's it's shocking not surprising you know yeah yeah. it's it's really one of those i will also say that it is it will give you if you're if you're prone to this sort of thing it will give you an incredible occasion to to think about uh the concept of original sin yeah oh yeah it's kind of truly remarkable what he does with that and i think we'll talk a bunch more about it or other stuff there's so much to say it also gave me occasion to so we have not only brutal cops but also brutal they're brutal dumbasses again yep. surprising <laughs> no one yeah. um yeah. and it gave me occasion to look into some of the horrifying dumbassery of our um cops and wow um yeah it's uh, as i was telling tristan and megan before we started recording it is you have to like you really have to kind of dig you find some bizarro stuff pretty fast but it's 
it's nuts how much you have to dig for it. So like, it's this thing everybody knows, you know, but like how many police have crashed into donut shops, you know, um, so many, I wish there were a sort of compendium there. Um, Sadly, sadly there was none, but just the fact that this novel, which felt like nothing more than a short story at the end, I was like, what? is there's not more, you know, which is yeah. kind of a good feeling to have at the end of something. Like the the way that the end sort of puts you in a position to to identify with the disbelief of the characters is really formally interesting too. And so I hope we talk about that. There's just everything to talk about here, conceptually, formally, politically, anything you'd want to talk about in a novel, it's right here. So thanks Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Richard Wright. And I'm glad this exists. <laughs> truly. Thanks, Richard Wright. I have a career. Like, he's, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But this yeah. is like, he's, I love him. I really do. So we are talking about historicization in the sense of racism and police violence, psychology and sensation, religion, and the, the sort of language of abstraction and ontology that Wright does here, which is quite... It's a bit difficult to get your head around, but also amazing, I think. So um, summary-wise, this – and I'm going to do just a tiny bit of like where this diverges from the, the story, but not a lot. So like a number of Wright's other books, this one is in three parts. Native Son is like that. The Outsider is like that. Black Boys have in halves. Anyway – I'm going to touch, like I said, briefly on the distinctions between this and the story. The short story, the the most important thing is that it only begins at the very end of part one, which is when he goes into the underground. So that whole first part that we read isn't in the short story at all. We can talk about why. So at the beginning of the novel, Fred Daniels, who's very much the sort of, he is intended to be a, a figuration or a stand-in for like, any young working class black man. He's arrested for the na- murder of his neighbors, his employer's neighbors, this man and woman. And we know from page one that he is like ludicrously, obviously innocent. Like there's no doubt whatsoever. And right. we begin embedded in the critique of policing. Like for me as a reader, that's mm-hmm. we open with that. In the first part, he is tortured by the cops he's beaten he's hung from his ankles he's forced to sign a confession and and he's beaten so badly that even when he forces he's signing this confession he like doesn't know how to write his own name like he's so fucked up in the head and body too oh yes i'm sorry yeah absolutely just just ruined and then in order to sort of further torture him, the cops drag him to the the murder scene, which isn't really clean. It's not even cleaned up. So there's like blood and guts everywhere. It's, and again, he didn't do this. Yeah. No, and, and I think, I mean, I think one, uh, you know, so this book is many things, one of which is uh, 100% a critique of uh, of carceral violence and, and, and the racist police state. And I mean, it's so clear, the cops do not, it's, it's not that this like extreme violence is driven by the like, they really think they got the one is they don't nope. give a shit. It's like they have a narrative, they have a convenient, you know, young, poor black guy that they arrested. And that's it. That's They're it. Going 
going to force him into this narrative, which, you know, yeah, is, ex- I mean, extremely uh, upsetting and, and very cutting. And, and yeah, I mean, frankly, how policing in a racist state works. You it's know? fully proximity, but, right? Like, he's just the closest yeah. poor black yes, man. Yes, 100%. Yes, it's, yes. It's also yeah. the way that the, this violence reproduces something that looks like that looks consensual so that we can all have this so that 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 our society can so we can all feel good about about how things are right like the confession is signed but you don't see like how the sausage is made so the the distinction between the form and the kind of extractive process is something that richard wright hammers home here yeah and it's 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 awful to read it, but it's incredibly effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, can I just uh, two very quick uh, quotations, which I think might were helping me because I know Megan in the next section, you're going to get into the surrealism. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, one, like one thing I like the, the sort of like breakdown of a con- of a coherent sense of reality in which like truth equals justice or something like or some kind of sense. This expo this experience with the police is one of the first cracks in like uh, both the novels and, and the protagonist just sense of self. Um, and there, there are there are two lines I marked that I did think like sort of gesture towards what the surrealism later is doing. Um, so the one on 15, this is this is when the cops are, are, are beating him. Uh, and they were asking, where do you hide, hide the money? Curiously, he felt these questions had the power of projecting him into a strange orbit where, though he was not guilty of a crime, they made him feel somehow guilty. He fought against this enveloping mood. So so even though, I mean, he knows he hasn't done it, it's the, the like being created into this like, uh, you know, racist narrative is like what the violence is doing. And then there's... Um, uh, a later, uh, I think this is on 37. Yeah, so it says uh, he, so uh, it says the reality of Reverend Davis had fallen from him. That's so he's, you know, he's a, he's a, um, uh, Fred Daniels is a, a member in good standing of his church or, or deacon or something like that. And so, but like that is not protecting him, right? Mm-hmm. The reality of Mr. and Mrs. W- uh, Wooten had faded. Those were his, his white employers. He was claimed by some strange, powerful reality which the policeman represented. You know, so that that's a very, like kind of ontological violence that's happening yeah. in addition to the, uh, you know, the direct, uh, you know, violence in an everyday sense that's happening. Yeah, it's And it's also, he he talks about like the absurdity of his getting arrested really, or it's like page eight or something. Yeah. And that's another one yeah. of those cueing words to me that's like, this is absurdist in a certain kind of way. Oh yeah, for sure. And being yeah. swept up in, in affect or like embodied mechanisms of feeling or something it's like very much in Mm -hmm. the body right where it's it's that in that moment tristan that you read he's like maybe i am guilty and or even that that what that means doesn't have coherence Mm -hmm. that anymore right yeah so so he's taken to this murder scene and then they take him to his apartment where his wife is going into labor and the cops take Fred and his wife, Rachel, to the hospital. And then she's in the delivery room and he escapes just incredibly easily. Like he just walks down a hallway. And this is where the short story begins. So if you're reading just the short story, you get this background in a really truncated way, but you don't get this scene, the earlier scenes. Um, and so then he jumps in, he opens a manhole cover when he hears sirens and he jumps into a sewer. And we think the sirens are for him, but we're not actually positive. That's another thing that's sort of yeah. about the atmospherics 
that are happening in this book where it's like, oh, there's sirens, but maybe they're for him. Yeah. And I think back to the, uh, 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 Katie, the, the absurdity that you were noting. I mean, I think we have that, like, yeah, like the fact that he, I mean, it's not, none of it is comic, right? Because it's so brutal, but like the, the ease with which he escapes from the dub ass cop, it's like, yeah, like, I mean, policing being extremely stupid, uh, is a, you know, white racist cops being extremely stupid is, is a point being made there. But then like, and, and yeah, the, 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 the into the sewer, there's a, um, I mean, what very, very upsetting, uh, but but just also like kind of otherworldly aspect to it. Uh, but yeah, like the are the sirens for me or not, which itself poses this kind of abs- like the, the sort of like the uh, I don't know, particularly as a racialized person, as a black man, uh, the 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 the, the uh, all encompassingness of the police state makes like are the sirens for me or not a question that again, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean in the way it's supposed to right. mean, you know, which and it's absurdity as it well. Reforms, right? like, it re- reinscribes him as the subject of the police state, right? So it being for him is like of no consequence because it changes who he is. And right. this is all very like, whether, I mean, we just can't say it's like quite funny or not because it is in the sense that like Kierkegaard is. Yeah, right. You know, right, or sure, like Dostoevsky. Sure. Yeah, right. yeah. Him walking out of the out of the hospital and escaping works in the exact same way that he's. They already have their man. They have him completely, and whether or not they have somebody else, it sort it sort of doesn't matter, right? Yeah, and that will come up at the end that they have found the real guy, and they're like, "You can't fucking tell anybody." Okay, but have they found? <laughs> have they found? They the say guy? they okay, have. Anyway. I yeah, so like it doesn't matter. I don't think who who the real. Yeah. We know it's not yeah. Fred Daniels, right? Like that's yeah. We that's yeah. the only thing we know. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. One last thing, if I uh, could just ask, like flag, right? Like Fred Daniels, um, when you when you said Megan, he could, you know, very much it could be any young working class black man, and and that, like, just formally and structurally, that is so striking. Uh, well, just striking in opposition to like what he does with Bigger Thomas and Native Son, where again he was, I mean, so like that that function of Fred Daniels, right? That he's this kind of like prototypical. Um, I mean, someone that you know because we. Know he obviously didn't do this. We're already, you know, and does and is not in any way a violent person, right? We are, you know, very much like okay, we're on board with sympathizing with this person. Whereas with Bigger Thomas, like at every stage, he's like, nope, I am not going to let you in any way sentimentalize state violence. And I, I mean, and I don't think that like that, like I don't think we can sentimentalize it here either. But it's because of other features of the novel, not not the character choice like not how he constructs the character if that makes sense i mean that's how i read it i also think that like sometimes right is awesome at character sometimes not and sometimes it's about how a character is like molded by the events of the novel i think that that's most important in both of those books like how pliable the character is and so this character is like his basic ontological condition is plastic Right. So it's like, yeah, he goes underground and he becomes a different thing entirely. He becomes the mole man. And, you know, Bigger Thomas is also like completely pliable, but in a different way. Like he has some different kind of the the way that he's changed. His escape is totally different. We never think Fred Daniels is going to like murder his wife. 
in the no, way that Bigger no. Thomas kills his girlfriend in the second part of Native Son. Like we don't think he's mm-hmm. his being determined by the carceral state is a different way of being determined. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, for sure. I think Bigger Thomas is reactive and yes. and Fred Daniels is just is is not he's responsive or something. Yeah, I think that's right. And the spatial conditions are so important too. Yeah. No, definitely. And the definitely. vantage point, and, and, right? Like that Fred Daniels gets to have an eyeball on the scenes that are happening above ground, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. that's the whole thing about Bigger Thomas is that he's like maximally surveilled. Right. And 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 I and so actually I I mean I think there's a way in which these characters are very much in dialogue with each other, even though they seem so different. Um, which is that in I mean the, in both cases they are they are created by their sort of structural conditions, right? I mean, that's a that's that's one of Wright's central mm-hmm. claims with Bigger Thomas, is that it's like this this character, this 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 person is created under the conditions of carcerality and white supremacism. And so is Fred Daniels, although like, and I think to Katie's point about him being like responsive, it, it, you know, the specifics of it sort of shape um, in a different way, but the, but the, but the, but the broad overarching forces are maybe there's, there's a lot of continuity between the two mm-hmm. novels. And I think you're so right that like the tone is part of that too, right? That like, if we start in the I don't know, feel or mode of absurdism, then it's going to go very differently than if we're in like a naturalist novel. Yeah. Okay. So he opens a manhole cover and he jumps into the sewer. And then we open part two and Fred is traveling through the sewer, which is right like in that it is disgusting in its detail and full of highly symbolic rats. He's a big disgusting fan of the rat. On this initial exploration, he hears a church choir singing. He sees the corpse of a baby. It's really upsetting. And this book is already really deeply upsetting. It doesn't, it, it's treatment of bodies is like, I'm not sure we'll be able to get to it today, but it's quite brutal. Yeah. And he finds this subterranean cave, which becomes his home base. I'm not quite sure otherwise how to describe it. It's like his center central location and then from the cave he begins to tunnel into the neighboring basements of a funeral home and a theater and then he's on to his surrealist thieving adventure which is him moving through basements like a demented mario game (laughs) yeah pretty much yeah he like plunders a safe in an insurance company which you know good for him uh he steals a bloody cleaver from a butcher's which is fucking metal and he makes up with a shitload of watches and diamonds from a jewelry store which is also like cool as hell yeah yeah in the jewelry store okay again this is the part where he has these meditations that feel deeply existentialist so he has this he sees the night watchman and the night watchman is asleep and there's this moment of reflection where in the book, it says, he's looking at the sleeping man. He says, gazing like an invisible man hovering in space upon the life that lived above ground in the darkness of the sun. And back in the cave, this philosophical reflection continues where Fred is overwhelmed by what I guess I would call this like fundamental ontological shift. Yeah. Where he says he feels through images that he is all people 
and they were he. Yeah. So, and actually, so Malcolm Wright and his, the, his grandson, right, uh-huh. in the afterword talks about the, I mean, so anyway, I just like the I, the philosophical, like, yes, and with an extremely long history. And so Malcolm Wright says that like one of the things that his grandfather was doing here is like rethinking Plato's allegory of yeah. the cave, um, mm-hmm. yeah. which if he, I mean, just so to I don't know, review basically what that is, it's a, I mean, P- Plato is authoritarian as all hell, like that's what the philosopher king shit. So I mean, that well, I'll, I'll start with that. But like the allegory of the cave is there are these people who are kept prisoner in a subterranean cave and they're chained in a way that they can only look straight ahead and for like unspecified nefarious thought experiment reasons there's a fire behind them that projects shadows of these like puppets and things so all the people see are these shadows on the cave uh, the cave wall one of them escapes mm-hmm. makes it into the world and sees oh wow the world is not what i think it is and then when they return to the cave the question is like but do the people who have like lived seen only those reflections actually want to be exposed to the truth and like the answer for Plato of course is like no like basically most people are kind of trapped in there I mean again very kind of authoritarian um, and I think Malcolm Wright says that one thing that Wright's doing is sort of in some way inverting or flipping that allegory yeah. um, which is yeah. is interesting um, but yeah. to see a, like I don't mean simplified but a abstracted version of the world is yes. a, diff- a shift right right it's very it's very funny because so you could like you could stand the cave allegory on its head or you can see it like if you see it through that religious lens and just say like the world you see the world through a mm-hmm. glass darkly you know right. like that's right that's your only access to anything and what seems most real is in fact most most illusory it's all all you see are surfaces and surfaces are not real yeah no for sure and and i think i mean i think the ones are uh, one point of like connection to what we do see happen to that Plato allegory is that and Megan will get there. Like when 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 Fred Daniels tries to explain the truth that he's seen, he it's like it's impossible for him yeah. to do so. So like there's there's yeah. way in which like this this very like eye opening kind of abstraction or just like disembodied experience produces this awareness, but that then does not actually translate into the like material political world or something like that. I mean, yeah. I think it's like it's hard to know if it's disembodied or it's like hyper embodied. Yeah, no, that's you know, a good point, because yeah. it's not. I, and I really don't know which or both because of the thing like feeling through images, right? Like, so he becomes this sort of maximally receptive body yeah right Mm -hmm. so he's like constantly working in this in this like mode of just feeling through the world and this is katie you're sort of alluding to this earlier which is the like the sensorium that this novel builds is incredibly fucking weird deeply 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 bizarre and full of like images of of satiation and satisfaction that mm-hmm. are very visceral and also just th- this incredible pain that is in dis- you know th- that is sort of indescribable but also described in a way that'll make you just barf as it And should. we could also if we w- Malcolm Wright doesn't talk about this but a certain kind of reader would not be wrong to say that in this part he's operating purely by virtue of the unconscious which is part of why he doesn't have a name really at that point or or why he's like mm-hmm. sensate in a certain way that he's in he's in the unconscious mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah right is not anti-freudian by the way 
So he's on his little his his little adventures. And then he so he's all people. <laughs> okay. And then he uh decorates his cave with hundred dollar bills and all the watches and, and diamonds and and every Marxist reading this is freaking the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we're like, oh, they not, they have neither use value nor exchange value because they've yeah. never had use value anyway, yeah. unless you want to make like chips yeah. out of diamonds yeah. for car and for Teslas or whatever the fuck diamonds are use valued yeah. for. And so I'm just like, I am intrigued. I'm so fucking mystified. Like it's amazing and then also this is where i will sort of know this feels familiar it should richard wright's story is like ralph ellison explicitly said that invisible man was partly inspired by this story and while the the sort of like the money and objects of wealth are important what's most important there is the light system that he sets up because that's the the whole opening of invisible man is is him in the mm-hmm. brightly lit cave with only Louis Armstrong to for company. <laughs> <laughs> I, that yeah, that sounds like an amazing uh, scene. Um, looking looking forward, definitely glad we're doing it next season. I, I will say, like on the 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 sort of like neither use nor exchange value stuff. Like I I I mean yeah I you know I'm thinking of part three of Native Son and like Marcus Chris was like uh huh uh huh yep yep a hundred percent and but here he like. <laughs> so i'll just this is my on page 94 when he's it's talking about him like basically using hundred dollar bills as wallpaper right it's, it says he broke the seal and held one of the bills up to the light and studied it closely the united states of america will pay the bearer on demand 100 dollars. he read in slow speech and then this note is legal tender for all debts public and private he broke into a slow musing laugh he felt that he was reading of the petty doings of people who lived on some far off planet he turned the bill over and saw a beautiful white building with soaring columns and wide curving steps leading up to an imposing entrance. He had no desire to count the money. It was what it stood for, all the manifold currents of life swirling above ground that captivated him. Which, I mean, and actually, no, I mean, like, maybe maybe there there is, uh, this does get back to, like, Wright's, uh, you know, very strong kind of Marxist politics in that, like, just the absolute absurdity of the sort of <laughs> economic systems at the, at the mm-hmm. center of this. But like, what's weird though is, I mean, I think that's a hundred percent a point that is being made, but like, unlike native son, this novel feels interested in other effects that are much more, as, as you guys have been talking about, like kind of psychological mm-hmm. or like existential or like religious, not religious, which I mean, that's fine. You know, I mean, that's, there, there's, you know, that, that, that in and of itself is very interesting. Um, I guess it's just, it, it, it's, it is still remains strange to me that we're thinking of this coming off of like what native son was doing and then trying to get my head around like what this is. It's doing, so Freudian you know? too, right? That it's like, that's exactly yeah, the yeah. dream image, which is like that the dollar bill, yes, the hundred dollar yeah. bill doesn't stand for the hundred dollar bill, right? It stands in for something else. And it's like, he no longer recognizes the building on the back, right? Like, so it, it's not doing the symbolic work that it's supposed to do. It's doing like a different kind of symbolic work. Yeah. So it does stand in for something, but not the thing that it ought to, because the mm-hmm. words come to mean something different, right? So all our reliable significations yeah. are cut off from their signifiers. Yeah. And, we, and you know, which is a, 
I mean, sort of a, a, an eye opening and eye opening, and in many ways, very sort of attractive process. And again, you know, this is a character who is escaping police violence, right? So there is, I mean, like kind of looking for a sort of like a liberatory possibility there. But you know, it's also a deeply unmooring thing to have like that line cut between you mm-hmm. know <laughs> signifier and side and our you know and 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 okay, so you're getting to some sort of truth of the unconscious. But like, and you know, we're, so Megan, you're about to take us back, back above ground. Like, where does that actually leave you then when you try to re-enter the, the conscious or the political or the material every right. day? It turns out it leaves you utterly fucked. Yeah. <laughs> to come yeah. out of the cave. Yeah, although not, not that this character wasn't yeah. already deeply right. fucked. Fu- I mean, you know, he, you know, the, the, so anyway, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I I really am trying to get my head around this. So. That that's the yeah though that's the thing is that he's fucked in a way that you can't totally. unfuck even when in fact the plot yeah unfucks yeah. Him. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah the plot yeah. is and again for me the end of that is it's absurdist actually the closest thing it feels to me is like Brechtian mm, mm-hmm, like oh mm-hmm. you're you're innocent go away is right. is right. like that Marxist theater of the absurd shit Mm -hmm. well talk about use and exchange value right yeah right (laughs) sincerely um or or the like function of a piece of paper right that the confession and the dollar bill and those sort of wildly overdetermined signifiers of of whatever we want to call them liberation are just float in the wind yeah uh okay but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna finish this off so he, there's this little moment, he has this next sort of exploratory errand, because he's always sort of looking for food. And he comes through this fruit shop basement to the surface, and he sees a newspaper with the headline, Hunt Black Who Committed Double Murder. So we know at this point that this pressure's on, right? Like, So we do see the pressures of the surface world reasserting themselves. Definitely. And sorry, just to I, I briefly close read that headline, that... Uh, the imperative in that I find very striking. Yep. Like that doesn't mm-hmm. that doesn't really feel like a newspaper headline, which would say police hunt or the hunt is on. It's like the reader of the newspaper is themselves being interpolated yes. into Who the police. Who is the subject of that? Yeah. yeah. Is it an yeah. imperative or is it just like a bad sentence that's missing its subject? Both. Yeah, which is totally possible. <laughs> yeah, but but I it, and I think it makes you think that like even the way that headline would probably actually look, which is police hunt, it, it's still the same thing. It's like you know society, aka white society, being sort of like mobilized to contain you know this ra- this racialized uh, uh, su- subject. It's so funny because like this is just I'm just going doing going off here, but like this book is so rewarding for close reading. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. and and Native Son, it certainly yeah. has those moments, but I can see why, like you know, historians like to talk about it too. It, uh, but this is is much richer in that sense. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I do. Again, I think his later work tends to be more conceptually sophisticated and and more mm-hmm. interesting writing. Anyway, so he's so we get the the weirdest headline. And then this time he's sort of moving through the basements. He's watching, again, the actions of the people above him. And he sees the cops who've been hunting him. And they're working over all the workers at those businesses, both black and white. And it's not, you know, class solidarity at all. But 
but I think we do see a glimpse of like the cops are just willing to like beat the shit out of any poor person for mm-hmm. more information. Yeah, for sure. And the, 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 the not just tendency, the inherent quality of uh, white supremacism to spiral out in bigger and bigger uh, forms of violence, yeah. which I mean, you know, again, that's that uh, in the how uh, how bigger was born essay, he gets in directly to that. And, and I mean, uh, yes, for sure. And also like that race and class forms are really never untangled for right you know it's not like white poor right, people right. are treated well <laughs> right, right um so we get to section three always the the most challenging section in a richard wright novel uh, fred <laughs> who is not really fred but some sort of subterranean consciousness form has completely lost track of what being on the surface is this is he's a mole man yeah. and uh, yeah. In a state of like whatever we call it, either this is how the novel has to work so right commands this, or it's a state of madness or whatever. He comes out of his hole because he has to confess to the cops. This is what he the book says motivates him here. He goes to the cop shop, but he has a, he really has a hard time remembering anything about the above ground yeah. world, other than he's guilty, which he's not. Right. So he's so he goes into the cop shop. He tells them about his cave and the tunnels, and they are like, uh, "Did the did the men in the white coats send you here?" Like they really think that he <laughs> yeah. is making no sense whatsoever. But he's not crazy. He has just reached a state of higher underground consciousness in which he's all people, and we yeah. are in a Dostoevsky novel. <laughs> And yeah. things have begun unraveling in the most novelly, wonderful way, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that he once he actually finds the cops that have been charged with solving this case, solving, he can't be guilty because the cops have found the, quote, Italian who committed the crime. And in front of Fred, they burn his confession. So motivated by whatever he shows he has to show them his subterranean lair and he drags them to the manhole cover that marked the beginning of his hiding at this moment there's a an air raid which is not in the story so that's interesting um Uh i do find it like how many air raids were there in the united fucking states yeah no that's the thing it's um (laughs) other than Pearl Harbor, which was, you know, you know, U.S. colonial holding, there weren't. I, I so I guess I mean I think so. I was thinking two things there because yeah, what I was like, wait, what? I was scratching my head. I do remember. So this was written in what forty one, forty two, and 42, the idea that I the U, U. Okay, so the idea that the U.S. coast could be subject to uh, you know German or Japanese air raids was, I mean, that like people were really afraid of that. Like there were mm-hmm. blackouts up and up and down the coast. Uh, so the idea, yeah. So I mean, I think an actual fear of of wartime America. But then, yeah, I I also just I don't know. Um, <laughs> the sort of pervasiveness of state violence like being felt another way i think might be part of what's happening there I mean, that sounds that that yeah that sounds right <laughs> like state surveillance yeah. the state you know the constant pulse of like a state of emergency is, is important yeah. there 
I also do think that the the idea, which I mean, of course, the global South uh, is still one hundred percent lives with, um, but but like to, you know the, the the total war concept of the first and second world wars, the all pervasiveness of violence and targets of violence. I mean, in a weird and very fucked up way, has has a deep absurdity to it mm-hmm. as well. That the entire world is just going to suddenly start exploding around you, you know, as you go about your civilian, not thinking of this as being like kind of a wartime activity life. Um, so, I, right. I, yeah, I mean, I actually think in a lot of ways it gets to a lot of the other themes mm-hmm. of the book. Yeah, I think so too. So he, Fred is, he's taking the co- he th- he's like the cops have to see this. So he's lowering himself into the sewer again, and one of the three cops, his name is Lawson, because you know. Sure. <laughs> yeah. He gives the funniest jo- white people jo- names. Johnson. Yeah, Lawson. Smith. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, uh. The the cop shoots him in the chest, and the novel ends with this line, and it ends in an ellipsis, which is bananas. And it's the current. He's he falls into the the water in the sewer. The current spun him forward. He closed his eyes. A whirling black object, rushing along in the darkness, veering, tossing with the gray tide, lost in the heart of the earth. Dot dot dot. Um, so fucked up. Just so so. Yeah. Okay, so the body is an object now, but it's not, and and he's like sentient but not conscious, and it's just too too fucking yeah. nuts. The the way that it ends is so. I mean, of course, you know this is the inevitable conclusion we're hurtling toward maybe not this exactly but something like it the moment when the confession his confession is burned there's no impulse even as a reader to be like what do you just go home what do you just go home like you're by that point you are in the surreal and inhabiting it and he's inhabiting it so fully that you know that he is no longer a person who could right he's totally split yeah. from that and and i think that's the point that the 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 reality represented by his church the reality represented by his relationship with his uh, white employers who i think are you know we don't get that much of them but the sense that they're you know like a sort of prototypical like white bourgeois liberals or something like that that, that none of that or in and the world like his his wife mm-hmm. you know where he's a he's about to be a dad and this very kind of domestic thing i mean how would you put any of that back together after the just like complete uh you know encompass set of fractures that that yeah. start with his his experience of police violence and then that lead to the whole underground thing so yeah i mean it's that that you're you're not you're innocent go home i mean that that puts nothing back together right, right? It, it doesn't even right. it's not even meaningful for him right right it's the thing that can't be undone is always the thing that to somebody never happened right yeah. But then I think the the even more unsettling flip side of that is that his new truth doesn't his new truth doesn't lead anywhere where he's not going to end up dead, yeah, right? Totally, and, and and it's also it's almost inexpressible within the world that these systems create and represent, yeah. right? Like he can't. He can't explain what he's seen to the police. I think both because like we're on the boundary between the unconscious and the conscious, but also yeah. because I, I don't think what he says is like articulable in a way that white supremacism is going to 
accept or even be capable of sort of accepting and understanding. He's feeling through images, man. How can you like communicate an yeah. image world <laughs> yeah. to another person? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, I looked, I just, I have this, the, the story collection with me just because I was interested and it does not end with the ellipses, which I can only assume is just a publication insistence that they were like, you have to yeah. end, dick. That's- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can have yeah. one one dot at the end, not fucking more than editors that. are all such square, such squares. <laughs> and the, well, and it was in a magazine too, so it's like, but it doesn't go right into the next story. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm the context for this. I'm really going to sort of review the publication history uh, more than talk about Wright himself. Although, again, like I love that f- fucking weirdo. If you want to know more, just there's a. <laughs> read any number of wonderful writings on him and read his autobiographies and his late stuff from Black Power is also really interesting. So Wright wrote this in, I think, we think 1942. So Native Son comes out in 1940 and then 12 Million Black Voices comes out in 1941. So really, this is a moment of a really high degree of production before Black Boy. And for me, before the outsider which is 1953 i think and really mm-hmm. the the departure from his previous styles it's not for nothing he moved to france in 1947 he was of course concerned about mccarthyism you know and it's not that france is not racist but the particularities of like us white supremacy also right. motivated that mm-hmm. so he he says in the essay that follows the book in the new edition that it was written from sheer inspiration and he felt in the grip of imaginative freedom. So he was like f- freed up in some way to sort of write this, which is really interesting. He, his agent sent the book to Harper, which is now Harper Perennial. And the press was, of course, extremely excited about a new novel from the guy who brought you that horrifying book with the big rat and a brutal rape scene and a searing condemnation of the prison industrial complex (laughs) i love that guy (laughs) um apparently they thought the early scenes of police torture were quote too hot to handle sure um wait till they find out what happens in the united states literally every day yeah Yeah. wait till i introduce (laughs) you to life yeah 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 and then the short story version was published in the journal Accent in 1942. So yeah, maybe he did write in 41. And the short story version begins with Fred going into the underground. So while we know that the police violence has taken place, we don't actually see it, as we noted. Right. And this was published in a collection called Eight Men, which is where I read it in grad school. And it was in 1961. So after his death. That is, it is interesting that they they found this uh, too hot to handle in a way that they were, you know, not uh, that with with Native Son. And I think, I mean, maybe part of it is that in Native Son, where the cops are absolutely 100% like violent racist assholes, 
but the fact that we know that bigger was guilty whereas yeah. here they're like yeah. in, they're doing this to someone who's innocent i also did i mean i guess we're a little bit before the mccarthyite red scare i did wonder if we were also a little bit starting to see the anti like rabbit anti-communism kind of clamp down a little bit on I what the uh, so. right was doing yeah um, i mean even yeah, between 1940 probably. and 1947 is an enormous shift for sure and and also probably like you know fucking jingoistic uh like wartime but yeah. like they're, they're yeah. like i don't know like 1940 yeah. uh could uh 1940 could enter in, in sort of like liberal platforms could entertain a critique of the u.s state in a way that like the 1942 u.s liberal establishment couldn't or something i mean i like think that. so yeah or and yeah. there's a bit of like we have to like any energy directed against, quote, injustice has to be about the war effort and not about the domestic terror right. of Jim Crow and police violence and white supremacy. Right. So this version, our current novel version, was published last year, of course, uh, after Wright's daughter, Julia, and his grandson, Malcolm, were able to help in reconstructing it from the typescripts in at the Beinecke. Still mad at y'all for not giving me a grant. <laughs> it would have been a really good yeah, project. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's a, like it's a little weird that it took a long time, but also bear in mind how much of Wright's work was unpublished at his death. So like mm. Eight Men, Law Today, A Father's Law, others, lots of others, including Black Hope, which is still not in print. It's the one that other right dorks and i are like you know hoping is relatively complete because it's about black women domestic workers and it's mm. uh, they they say about it's his only work that has a woman protagonist so it'd be really interesting i we i don't know how complete it is but if it's close it would be interesting to see it mm -hmm. the outsider was out of print for a little while really really only native son and black boy which is now published with american hunger were well known until Wright got more critical reception. So in the last year, we've gotten some great reviews from leftists like Bill Mullen and Tempest Magazine, friend and guest to the pod, Lauren Michelle Jackson in The New Yorker, and then some like academic self-congratulation from like roundtables at fucking Yale, but also just <laughs> just the most like maximally cringe nonsense from people like oprah who was like i couldn't believe that there was an unpublished right novel and it's like what the fuck are you talking about ma'am like there's first of all there still is and I, from the person who brought you dr phil's phil doctors <laughs> phil and oz oh god yeah that's right i, I like i i will say not being a, a scholar of this period it it does and i mean i, I know via megan the the realities of, of rights publication it still does blow me away that a writer this central to u.s literature still has stuff not in print i mean Top that is that is crazy black to think writers about, in the united states for yeah. always like h yeah. huge yeah you know giant in u.s letters yeah no i mean he yeah he, he he is he is definitely one of the most important i mean like yeah top, top tier most important u.s writers from the beginnings of anything that could be considered the united states to the present imagine that there's like a bunch of melville shit that we haven't read 
Yeah, no, and it's it is yeah. I mean, for, for certainly for the twentieth century, it it yeah. feels it's, very much it's, like it's that. pretty yeah. astonishing. But I also would say that that's partly because there's this there is this reception of Native Son that's like lib, which makes me cry every time I think about it. Right that that Oprah would be like, we should read Native Son yeah. because it's about this like poor disenfranchised guy who is worked over by the system. <laughs> so I guess we have to ignore the whole communist screed that is the last hundred pages of that novel. Yeah, or the fact that he 100% will not allow or entertain a liberal critique of state violence and instead wants to do a very all encompassing mm-hmm. left communist critique yep. of the state form itself. <laughs> <You> know, but, <laughs> uh, okay, I, I have to ask, I have to ask, did, uh, and you might laugh your ass off at me for asking this, but like, did. Baldwin ever revise his opinion of right? I know they haven't had a comp like 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 what like how as this is how as his writing is developing is this I don't I mean I the only reason I guess I'm fixated on that is because of of uh everybody's protest novel which was like the way that I actually got introduced to Richard Wright before having read mm-hmm. any I mean so yes he he well it it shifted, which is not the same as like he reversed it. But he has he has a later piece where he sort of returns to Bright, and it's more he he takes him slightly more as like a tragic figure than he does in everybody's protest novel. That's incredibly interesting, given the I guess, uh, and and I'm you know not a Wright scholar, but just the. Development between those the this novel and and uh, Native Son is totally is totally extraordinary. Like if you, I would say even if if you're the person who doesn't like Native Son, you you can find something here that's different, but also unmistakably Richard Wright. So I don't know. It's 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 sort of he's an extraordinary artist, also in addition to being all of these other things. So James Baldwin, he had written that mean-spirited piece called uh, Everybody's Protest Novel, in which he basically said Richard Wright is doing the same thing as Harriet Beecher Stowe, (laughs) which is a bad reading of Native Son. He's he's actually, to me, he's doing an incredibly aesthetically conservative move in that essay, which Mm -hmm. is like, books should have characters. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, like, fine. But so he wrote an essay, like, right after Rich had Richard Wright had died, which was quite sudden. He was 52, although if you smoke as much as Richard Wright smoked. And drank. <laughs> and drank. He was he he did drink, yeah. but he wasn't a Hemingway drinker. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, would show up to shit. Yeah. And so he wrote this essay called Alas, Poor Richard. And he modifies his point of view a bit. He says that Wright, this is quoting now, as he died, was acquiring a new tone and a less uncertain aesthetic distance and a new depth. And he says about the this story that uh, Wright was beginning to have an ability to convey inward states by means of externals. And I'm getting this a lot of this from Lauren Jackson's essay in The New Yorker. So he did modify his point of view. I don't mm-hmm. I still don't think he gives right his due credit. Right. There's I'll tell the story at some other point, but there's a absolutely amazing anecdote at the beginning of the um Hilton All's introduction to the Chester Himes novel, If He Hollers, Let Him Go. Mm-hmm. And it's like a scene in Paris at a 
cafe and Richard Wright and Chester Himes and Baldwin are all sitting together and Baldwin is just like begging Wright for money. And yes, this is after everybody's protest novel. (laughs) And Chester Himes, who's been out of prison not for very long, is like, what the fuck is going on right now? And, you know, like, well, we can talk about this in a later episode, but the culture of novels and essays among Black writers in the 40s and 50s is just like this incredibly dense set of conversations between Baldwin, Wright, Ellison, Hansberry. And it's just, it's, it's so much really just beautiful, sometimes contentious debate. Like, it's one of the reasons I write about this period, because it's just Mm -hmm. like, totally stuffed. Right. Right. And, you know, Tristan, you and I will one day teach a class called The Novel and the Essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it, it does in some ways feel very reminiscent of a period of the 18th century as it well. It totally <laughs> does, right? Where, like, yeah, amazing yeah. novelist writers, novelist essayists were, like, shouting at each other. Oh, yeah. No, it, like, sw- like, <laughs> like swept into foe, you know? Right. Like, yeah, that. Anyway. And, no. like, writers nowhere... Dear, dear professors, may I have a special permission number to take <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely, Katie. You know, and as mean as Baldwin is to write, nobody in history has been as mean as... Richard Wright and Zora Neale Hurston were to each other. <laughs> well, Hurston, Hurston he's like right. Reaction. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, yeah, he she is uh, empirically correct. Yeah, she she definitely had a hard hard right turn. Uh, well, R I G H T, you know, but uh, she was among the strangest of this group of. Baldwin is not a strange guy to me, yeah. but like yeah. Wright was very weird. Yeah, yeah. Hansberry also not very weird. Yeah. That they they were some some deeply strange ge- genius motherfuckers yeah, at this moment. Yeah, yeah. Everybody read Lorraine Hansberry, by the way. She was just apparently like lovely. Mm-hmm. The Oprah thing is is obviously infuriating, but I I also actually find it a little upsetting that the sort of take on this book had been like, oh, you know, this feels very prescient because people. Are because the movement f- movement for Black Lives demonstrates that like people are angry about the killing of Black people now, which strikes me as just a bit reductive. In that like Black essays, novelists, critics have been talking about the killing of Black people by the cops since there were cops. Right. Yeah. 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 It's <laughs> yeah for sure. And so that I mean I think the sort of publicity around that like that's fine, but. I just think it's kind of reductive, and I think it's not giving credit to the duration of Mm -hmm. that kind of critical point of view. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to sort of steal Lauren's material again. It's not stealing if you give her credit, but um, (laughs) one of the things she says, which I think is so important, is that like the Black novel tradition is also about novels. You know, yeah, it's because yeah. I think, you know, and she's so right that like there's an impulse to take books like this as just sort of historical objects. Yeah. And, and so in one of her writings, she talks about this task of abstraction and she says, abstract living is the way of Fred Daniels, too, as he assembles the winking symbols of his subterranean environment into a new order that both feeds upon and exorcises the world above. So, yeah. To me, you know, one of the many reasons that that that's like 
good and cor- correct is that as we've already been talking about this is a fucking good novel yeah yeah it's not eating your vegetables like it just no, not the way that not. native son is okay. no yeah that it's it's hard to it it's hard to read this for different reasons it's hard to read native son because it's yeah. relentless Cruel. and it's and it goes yeah, yeah. I, and i i one of the things i love about native son it's like hey reader fuck you yeah <laughs> yeah no me too, me too. like uh, all of your expectations of what a novel's supposed to be for sure no but then i mean like look i you know i mean i as a marxist historicist like most of my readings of literature like start with the the lens of dialectical materialism um and which was not untrue for this but i will say among the most fascinating things to me are like kind of form and structure questions and just how it yeah. makes such different narrative and stylistic choices than than his other fiction that I've read. Right. And again, for me, that's like a later turn. And and really, as he says in the back of the book, influenced by what he takes to be an indigenous realist tradition meaning yeah. coming from the blues yeah yeah you know and, and actually i would i would love to spend you know to, to kind of wrap up our conversation here talk a little bit about the memories of my grandmother essay totally, I'm, I'm super yeah. curious to hear katie's take on mm-hmm. it because like yeah he he basically he's like hey yeah so what i was actually thinking about is my my grandmother was a seventh-day adventist and she was super religious in a very annoying uh well actually upsetting it but kind of abusive to me oh, right? yeah. like, like she would burn books uh that were God books that I brought home. Uh, but what I was really trying to do was kind of get into her worldview. And when I read that, I was just like, wait, what? That's what this was about? Like, I have to read this whole novel. <laughs> but he, did, I mean, so like, he says a, a, a few um, a, a different things, uh, like basically, but a lot of it does go to the question of kind of abstraction, like what, what he, I mean, I, my sentence, and I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing now, but that his grandmother's worldview tried to sort of contain a very uh, messy and violent and deeply unsettled uh, reality within a kind of ironclad theological structure. And he points to other uh, things from the black tradition, like jazz, for instance, uh, or, or uh, kind of old, uh, old uh, black uh, folk songs um, that are, or, you know, what kind of got recharacterized as folk songs in the, in, in the 20th century, mm-hmm. where um, there's not, you know, there, the, if you pay attention to the lyrics, um, there's not like a linearity. Instead, it, it is all about sort of abstraction and, and kind of a, a style of like dealing with reality that doesn't sort of try to contain it within a a like theological narrative um mm-hmm. is that i mean is that right i i don't i don't like yeah. does that sound sort of like a, a, the claim uh, to you guys um but anyway i'm just kind of curious to sort of think about those ideas i think i'll just sort of like add there that like he's very invested in the formal techniques again of like that essay is so dense because he's like, I have to talk about 80 things. And yes, one of them yeah. is like the parataxis of yeah. blues, right? So it's like yeah. that a given line would then break into like a completely different thought. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's doing this like deeply formalist consideration. And then he has this this abstracted or like conceptual question that he's asking about religion and form. Mm-hmm. And personality, which I think is really interesting. He talks about personality mm-hmm. a lot. So yeah. what was your, when you read that, Katie, were you like, 
Oh, you read it first. That's amazing. Yeah. So I read it first because I I knew this I knew the essay existed and like I knew it was about his religious grandmom. So but I never expected to find, in fact, that this whole he was gonna say that this whole thing is really um in some way about religion. I was like, Yeah, that somebody you said it before <laughs> right. I got to yeah. you're yeah. the best. But it's it's sort of really extraordinary how he sort of like th- this work is a kind of it's like a s- empty it's it's a religion sort of emptied of there's no salvation right it's like oh, religion no. with no salvation yeah. and what would that look like yeah. if you had to observe all the forms and know that like he's baptized in shit and becomes a new <gasps> totally. man. Totally. You know. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And he says he even says this that he's a that there's a direct statement of being a new man and a new man is a, is is very much uh signaling that what you're talking about is is a, is Christ because like the death of the old the old man in you is supposed to uh lead to the birth of a new man, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So we even have him walking on water. Yeah. Oh, like, we do. Yeah. And at the end, he's like floating. Yeah. So he's and he's also he's he's resurrected. Right. Like he goes into the tomb and yeah. it's, he's sealed. And then he emerges again to to tell the good word. And no one hears him. <laughs> See, God damn, totally. I'm, su- I'm such not the right reader for this because it's like when you're it's like, oh, yeah, like, wait, right. Yeah. All of that is happening. You know, so um, I mean, you, that- well, you are in a sense because of his well, even to say ambivalence about yeah. like religion and the black church. Yeah. Will be important. I mean, and he has this like long, absolutely bananas it's too long to read, but like in 12 Million Black Voices, which has a lot of photography of black worship, mm-hmm. there's this moment where this is completely unpunctuated. And it's like, he's talking about the church and it's a place eternal filled with happiness where dwell God and his many hosts of angels singing his praises and glorifying his name. And in the midst of this oneness of being, there arises one whose soul is a thirst to feel things for himself and break away from the holy band of joy. And he organizes revolts in heaven and preaches rebellion and aspires to take the place of God to rule eternity and like on and on. And so he's, he's doing like limit case free indirect (laughs) uh surrealism essentially to access what might be his sort of description of the affects of worship yeah right no definitely so and one like one other just set of ideas i was thinking of which might i I don't know i'll just throw out there and and see if if they do go to this at all but the the ab the abstraction claims that i know you said lauren talks about in her essay so, like the idea of the abstract versus the particular, uh, there's been a lot of writing in um, discourse about like race and racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, one so sort of one very famous set of claims I'm thinking of is is Franz Fanon in uh, uh, Black Skin, White Masks, where he and he and Fanon's certainly not the only writer to make this claim, but that basically uh, sort of part of the um, 
epistemic and literal, like physical violence of racism is in like the particularization of the, the kind of like the marked as other person, like, so, you know, for right. Fanon and for right, you know, black, black people and black men versus the sort of like abstract universal subject of, of like kind of liberal th- thinking, which is uh, largely, which is under white supremacism, a white subject. And I, you know, and so like, but so part of what I was saying, okay, so like Fred Daniel starting to live in abstraction, he's like sort of claiming a subject position that is like specifically because of race denied to him. I don't, I mean, that feels relevant maybe to like the role of like kind of religion and the surreal in this, but I don't, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like finalize those sort of connections for myself. I mean, I, this this is maybe not right because I'm just sort of going with it, but like, I think for Fanon, there's no liberatory potential in being departicularized or being misrecognized. Whereas right. for Wright, there is something in that sloughing off of your name or your particularity or whatever mm-hmm. that's that, like, on the other side of that is something deeply interesting. Mm-hmm. And the other person who is in the undertext here sorry is sart right yeah yeah oh, absolutely yeah. because that part in being in nothingness where he talks about the the i as being the sort of vacuum at the center of the world is important here and mm-hmm. Wright's relationship with sart was quite deeply felt at fanon and sart <laughs> obviously was much more you know they, they had problems <laughs> they certainly knew each other well. Yeah. But um, when Simone de Beauvoir wrote America Day by Day, that book was based on a suggestion by Wright. Mm. And and so thinking with the the sort of high existentialist, the vacuum of the subject is in an interesting thing for Wright to explore in the way that for Fanon, that has theoretical impact and material impact. But there's nothing interesting about the subject Qua subject in that position, mm-hmm. right? It's an empty. It's a, a fundamental misrecognition. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, again, this is like a thought I've never had before. <laughs> no, no, I, that no, that help. That's that's really that really helps me. But I do. I just think that Fanon has not very much investment in surrealism. Right. He's not a formalist. He's not a novelist. Right. So he's not really interested in in the possibilities of like the unconscious in a novelistic context. No, he's not. Although he is, uh, you know, that, that, that chapter of, of black skin, white mass I'm thinking of, he does also then go through like quotations of all, all a manner of, of, uh, of black literary tradition. So he, he definitely does think that something happens in uh, the relationship between art, poetry, fiction, and reality that does open up some sort of insights. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I agree. They're not, th- these concerns are not the same that we see uh, in this novel or, or even in um, the essay that at the end, the, the memories of my grandmother. And for all his like amazing work, I just don't think he's a very, sorry, I don't think he's a great reader of fiction. Like I think, which I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, like I'm not a particularly great reader of philosophy. So, you know, well, I mean the stuff at the end of, Oh my God, I can't remember what that chapter is called. I'm so sorry. Where he talks, he talks about, right. And he talks about Himes. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like that. You say like bigger Thomas acts, 
and that's his significance is like, well, he's so acted upon that it's hard for me to get on board. Although that's what Tom- yeah. Bigger Thomas says at the end of the book, but I don't think he's like, his point of view is <laughs> necessarily reliable. Yeah. But I think what you're just like point you're pointing to the importance of the sort of radical black tradition in its like circulations at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have a game? We sort of have a game. Um, well, yes, we we actually we do have a game. We totally have a game. Um, so basically, I took this as an opportunity um, because it is leave you feeling bad and sad and terrible and i just thought let's feel bad and terrible and maybe laugh a tiny bit um at how dumb the cops are uh wow because boy sometimes they act like dumbasses in ways that are so mind-bending as to become like psychedelic but not in a cool yeah. way <laughs> yeah agreed um, so today's game is called Please God Jesus Fucking Christ No, this cannot be serious. Um <laughs> and uh no one's gonna win. Um our, even the our cops. Fir- yeah. yeah, no, especially not. So our first uh our first situation is both stupid and evil. <laughs> it has to do with the Dallas uh police. They they had an informant who um who was very really helpful guy. It helped him get uh 1500 pounds of coke um <laughs> and arrest 30 people. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And probably, you know, you don't want to test something that um that some guy is is giving you (laughs) right um you know if some guy points you to a car with open windows at a fast food place then yeah no you don't want to test the 169 pounds of cocaine that was left in their unlocked car now but anyway what do you what do you think they finally found out that it was baby powder um (laughs) that is actually not one of the options okay sorry um (laughs) A donut glaze. Oh my god. <laughs> B chalk dust. C cotton candy. <laughs> or D definitely actually real cocaine. Chalk dust for sure. I'm uh, channeling Clancy Wiggum here. Uh, <laughs> donut glaze. <laughs> you know, but, uh, oh man. All of this also just reminds me of touching fentanyl, which the, you know, oh the yeah, sure. There. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, well, we're we're not quite getting there, but I read a lot of. Sto- uh, wow, did I read yes, a lot of the, possible fentanyl exposure stories that required multiple administrations of. Um, which, for the record, Narcan. if you yeah. ask any doctor, they will tell you one. What the police describe in these are panic attacks, which is the <laughs> yep. opposite physiology of an opiate overdose, and also no touching fentanyl is not a sufficient delivery mechanism to do oh. this but anyway okay okay but what if someone blows it in your face yeah yeah, yeah like 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 that's one that really happened yeah um i still don't think isn't that still on your skin and not up your nose or in your veins well, maybe if you inhale really deeply or so i don't know <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah um yeah but anyway so megan you said chalk dust i said uh, I, I said donut glaze i mean yours is like much more poetic yeah. justice yeah. yeah. uh poetic injustice i suppose but like god it's i love the fentanyl stuff because yeah. like the best thing you can do to somebody whose heart is racing is give them a bunch of narcan oh yeah yeah multiple administrations <laughs> Just, okay. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, okay. Uh, question number two. Um, in 2008, 30 NJ cops um, engaged in an armed standoff at a bank with a suspect who turned out to be a cardboard cutout. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, yes. Question is, how long did it take to figure this out? A, one hour, B, three hours, or C, five hours? C. Yep, I'm, I'm with Tristan. On the basis of it is always going to be the dumbest and most ridiculous answer because yep, we're talking agreed. about <laughs> cops. <laughs> yeah, Impossible yeah. may it sound. I think it's probably the most. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be glad to know they did attempt to negotiate. <laughs> Um, with the cardboard That's thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read you just some some quotes here about an incident. The department is conducting an inter- an internal affairs investigation into the incident, which will remain confidential at this time. We are thankful that no one was injured. The important thing is no one was hurt. These things happen. People are fallible. Mistakes were made. We're moving to correct this. That is what we're doing. Okay. So to what incident are they referring? Uh, To what shooting incident are they referring? This is about a shooting incident. Shooting A, a stray balloon, B, a sick raccoon, or C, a life-size replica of a stormtrooper? C. Better if it looks like a person. No, that's giving too much credit. so I like actually. I'm going to say balloon because the idea of police just randomly firing off rounds up into the atmosphere uh, with no thought of where they're going to land sounds um, the worst version of that to me. So that's what I'm going with. Okay, <laughs> I'm only going to embellish the story a tiny bit and suggest that it was also at a cop gender reveal party and that it was like <laughs> full of blue dust. Oh my god! <laughs> and then the it- thin blue baby line. It then burnt down Yosemite National Park. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, that's it. Um, okay, so we're on to our last two questions. Number four is just a true or false. Uh, cops are warning about the latest danger to hit our streets. It's rainbow fentanyl. True. That's I right. already read about it. Okay, true. Okay. Yeah, so true. it's true. true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They think I it's was... going to be in Halloween candy. Yeah. Yep. 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 I was just, the answer was just, um, is this real or some bullshit that I made up? I also I just just so we can get this thing in there. There is uh, there is a uh, a CIA State Department version of touching fentanyl, which is Havana syndrome, yep. which even the CIA has had to be like, yeah, that doesn't exist. And still, uh, like blue check liberal journals are like, do the Cubans have a secret Russian brainwave? <laughs> yeah. no. no, they don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and you're being uh, ableist if you say anything. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh um, my god, I love I love my favorite cop story, believe it or not, is just Ted Kaczynski that they were like, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to go on TV. I was a FBI and uh he killed like 30 people. Yeah. Now, you yeah, and his brother had to turn him in and aren't we cool? Of course we'll go on TV and say we couldn't catch him yeah. for 30 years. We absolutely could yeah. not catch him. We were too busy confiscating fives of tens of speaker systems off the streets. <laughs> yeah. All right, here's the last last question. Uh, what happened in Florida due to an officer, quote, dry firing? A, he was arrested for masturbating in front of a gas station. Mm. B, he became startled and crashed his car into a Dunkin' Donuts. 
Or C, he discharged his weapon inside an elementary school where the bullet traveled across the school hallway through a classroom wall and lodged in a bookcase. And yes, there were absolutely children inside the classroom. Thank you so much for asking. What does dry firing mean? Just shooting your gun. Just just, just shooting, (laughs) you know, just shooting it with no bullets inside. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it, it, it's also it's ba- I mean it's it's bad stuff I know growing up in the country. It's bad to do it that it's just it it fucks up the gun. I was going to suggest like <laughs> doesn't that fuck up the gun? Yeah, it does. Uh, so he so no they yeah so at every level they have no idea what they're doing. I'm guessing it's the latter because it's the most disturbing. But I'm going with the cops eating donuts thing again. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Tristan, but I do really think it's the third one, and I yeah. just really love that like. The cops do not have sufficient firearms training. Yeah, no, yeah, just, just absolutely not. Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back through these real quick because I want you to know that out of our, out of number one options, donut glaze, chalk dust, cotton candy, real cocaine, it was the chalk dust. Megan was right, but uh, donut glaze was one they mistook for meth. Uh, <laughs> Cotton candy as well sent a woman to jail. Blue cotton candy. Um, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, Meg, you got that point. The arm standoff with the cardboard cut out only three hours long. A mere three hour standoff. Oh, wow. With the cardboard hey, that's a, that's cut a comp- out. Yeah. Competent department. Yeah. yeah you're doing amazing, sweetie. Um, yeah. So uh, the the shooting incident, stray balloon, sick raccoon, life-size replica of stormtrooper, it was the sick raccoon. But <laughs> oh, what I okay. also want to tell you is that um, a life-size replica of a stormtrooper did actually fool cops during a car chase. The the guys in the car left the car, and they get to the car with the, the, the stormtrooper inside, and one of the cops screams, I know you're in the car. <laughs> It's fantastic. Oh, you're in the car. And number five, uh, the masturbating in front of a gas station. That was a Georgia cop. Oh, God. Um, Crashed into a Dunkin' Donuts. No, that was in New Jersey. I was going to say, that's got to be in Boston, but New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Either either Jersey or, yeah, yeah, Yeah. Boston PD, yeah. Uh, yeah. so so Meg, you're you're our winner and still champion um, of knowing about dumb things that cops do. Um, it, Tristan definitely. I don't know whether this is a compliment to you that um, <laughs> or you know, uh, but yeah, better yeah, better it, luck next time, and also congratulations to all and none of you. At <laughs> <laughs> least of all, Richard Wright, who would certainly have approved of our uh, position toward the cops. <laughs> yes yeah so thank you thank you it's such a i i i'm glad i'm not glad that more books are republished but i'm glad we got to talk about it so this is better read than dead you can find me on twitter at teslersaurus and tristan on twitter at tj schweiger and katie on twitter at katie crywell you can find the show on twitter and instagram and facebook at better Ed pod and email us at better podcast at gmail.com but only if it's to tell us where your mind began to expand when you were reading this novel, because I think for all of us, it was a different point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when, when all galaxy. Our intro music is Left Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review and subscribe and send us a picture so you can get your cool buttons. And next up, we have William Wells Brown's Clotel, or The President's Daughter. And then we are just delighted. This is our 
fourth annual Halloween special. We'll be doing The Monk, The Stepford Wives, and The Body this year. And thank you, comrades. Like no dove, I'd fly up the river to the gallows. Very well, oh, Remember one morning, twas a dream.